Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading the first 16 verses there, and Alvin's going to come up and lead us in that. So reading from Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the, of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thanks, Alvin. Uh, I actually want to invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, a little bit further to the right, um, to the book of 1 Peter. And uh, we're actually going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12 this morning. So if you were around last week, if you were awake, um, and I say that because this is the 9 o'clock uh, service, so uh, if you were awake last week, we started looking at 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, and today we're going to carry that on. Just a really interesting observation, uh, having the two services, one at 9 and one at 11, it's interesting that the 11 o'clock is the coffee drinking crowd, where I thought it was going to be the 9 um, for being here at 9, but I figured that you guys are running so late you don't have time. Um, to get coffee on the way. It's probably uh, more to the point. Uh, yeah, we are wrapping up today our series, uh, looking at the church. So as we've been gathering together again, as things this year have been progressing a little more along the lines of normal, uh, we've been taking this time to think about from God's word what it actually means to be the church of the Lord Jesus. Um, what the church is, who God has made us to be, and how that shapes how we live in this world. So last week we started looking at uh, who God says we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And today we're going to look at some implications of that that Peter goes on to explain. So first of all, let me just read, and I'm going to read, when I find it, I should have put place in there. There we go, uh, 1 Peter 2. Let me read from verse 9 so we remind ourselves where we went last week. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And beloved, and this is where we're going to start today. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're thinking today then about this idea that through us, through the church, uh, through the witness of the church, people will come to know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be people who glorify God on the day uh, that Jesus returns. <clears throat> now, when we talk about mission and when we talk about evangelism as a church, as we're doing this morning, I think that there are kind of two basic responses, two camps that people fit into. And the camp that you fit into probably is determined by two things, your personality and your spiritual gifting. And those two responses are excitement and guilt. And I wonder whether there's not too many of us that actually fit somewhere in the middle. Those of us who are gifted in evangelism, and by that I mean that God has specially wired them to love sharing the gospel with others. And he's made them good at it. People with the gifting in evangelism get really excited. They get pumped up. They say, yeah, we need more of these sermons. We need to get off our backsides and we need to be out there telling everybody about Jesus. And if that was your response this morning when we read this and I said we're talking about evangelism, guess what spiritual gifting you have got? Now, for everybody else here, and this is myself included, the predominant response is guilt. Here we go. I know that I should be doing more of this. I know that I'm not doing very well at it. I guess I'm just going to have to try a little bit harder in the future. Now, often though, when we speak about evangelism and mission, um, we actually don't make a distinction very well between those two groups. We, we kind of just lump everybody in together and assume that everybody should be doing exactly the same thing. And what we tend to say then becomes a little bit vague and not quite pointed enough for those who are evangelists and for those, for those who are evangelists and for those who are not gifted evangelists, it becomes overwhelming and too hard and too difficult. A little while ago, I read a question, I read an article <clears throat> that raised the question, uh, what does evangelism look like for those who are not evangelists? And maybe to that we can add, what does evangelism look like for the timid or the introverts or the uncertain and the unsure? And it's particularly that group of people that we're going to be thinking about or preaching to this morning. Those who feel ill-equipped, overwhelmed by it, and for whom it seems too much. Now, as I said, last week we laid the foundation for this in many ways. And we looked at who we are to God, those words there in 1 Peter 1, 2 verse 9. Chosen race, royal priesthood, uh, people for his own possession, holy nation. People who have 
been made this by the work of Jesus. People whom God views as his own holy, chosen, separate people set apart for his purposes. And today we're going to focus on what we've been set apart for. And we're going to look at three things really. Our attitude to the world, our behavior in front of the world, and our witness to the world. And if you've got one of those outlines with you uh, that you got handed in, we've kind of divided them up with three statements that we read here in 1 Peter 2 and then one from, from 1 Peter 3 as well. Let's start then with our attitude to the world. And for this I want to focus very much on the first few words of verse 11 where Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now really, these words are describing who we are and our place in this world. They're talking about how we fit in and how we don't fit into the wider world around about us. And I think that this is extremely important. Because you and I, I'm guessing, we all wrestle with this idea that as followers of Jesus, as people who have been set apart, how do they then fit in with the world around about us? We know we are different from others. We are a holy nation, that phrase that we looked at last week. So do we, do we withdraw then and kind of, kind of do our own thing and hide away from, from the rest of the world? Or, or do we, because it's, it's difficult, do we sort of just blend in with everybody else around about us? Now, when Peter writes this letter, he writes to people who very much face that same tension. Somewhat different to our situation, though. He writes to an extremely religious community or extremely religious culture for whom life and faith were melded together and they were focused around pagan temples. That's where, that's where kind of the stuff of life happened. That's where there was like business stuff and family stuff and food stuff all around that. And then the Christians then face this question, how do we relate to that? Do we maybe just sort of go and head for the hills and live in a cage and sort of start up a Christian commune out there and do our own thing? Or do we sort of just go along with what everybody else is doing? And so as he writes to them, he says to them, as sojourners and exiles. And what he's doing in those two words is he's giving us an understanding of how we fit into this world. Now, they are strange terms, and maybe ones that we're not overly uh, immediately familiar with. Um, if you are old school and you still use the old NIV uh, 84 translation, the, the good one, um, you might remember that it had the word um, strangers and aliens. And when I looked this up in my old NIV 84, the good one, study Bible, um, it said about these words, we are heavenly people with a heavenly citizenship only passing through this life. Now, it gives the idea then that this world is evil. It is pretty much to be avoided and we are waiting to be zapped up out of it to live in heaven, sort of beam me up Jesus kind of style. But these words actually don't say that. 
it actually says something quite different. The word sojourner is used of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And the words sojourner and exile are used of him also in Hebrews chapter 11. And both of these terms, sojourners and exiles, are used by David to describe the people of Israel in 1 Chronicles 29. Now, this is important. In each case, it is used of God's people living in the promised land, but yet waiting to own it to possess it fully. Waiting for the completion of God's promises to them. They were there, the land was theirs, and they were waiting for that to be realized in fullness. Now, this is subtle, but I think it's really important. We, too, are sojourners and exiles. We live in this world. And this world belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Satan. It's God's world. He created it. He owns it. He reigns over it. But, for now... We are sojourners and exiles in it. We are waiting for the fullness of God's promises, the return of Jesus, so it becomes our eternal inheritance. You and I are not waiting to be zapped off to the clouds for eternity. We will live on the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. We are not avoiding this world at all costs and at all consequence. We are to put down roots here because it is actually our eternal home. You see, we can neither escape from the world around about us, but neither can we simply go along and look like everyone else. Peter will go on to say, abstain from sinful desires, so, so be different in the world, and we'll look at that in a moment. And he says, live such good lives among the Gentiles in the midst of everyone else. And so we have this tension. As a church, we are not a heavenly spaceship calling people to escape a doomed world about to be destroyed. We are not pulling up stumps on the world. The church is called to be part of God's plan to see it restored. To see it renewed by Christ and in Christ. We're people who, who live in this world and we should live in this world. We should have friends from outside the church and who don't know Jesus yet. Companionship and relationships with, with, with people who don't know Jesus at the same time abstaining from sinful desires. Our abstaining, though, doesn't come from our isolation. Our abstaining from sin doesn't come because we're removed from everyone and everything sinful. It comes because a new life has been created within us by the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It comes because He is at work within us. One of my favorite verses comes from uh, the book of Titus. 
Uh, so it says that the gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and evil desires. It's the good news that we have in Jesus which allows us to live godly lives. All right, that's our place in the world then. We are sojourners and exiles. The next thing we want to think about then is, well, what is our behavior to look like then in this environment? Already we've started looking at this. I want to look at two, two things that we see here. The first one is there in verse 11, that we are to stain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is talking about kind of morally good, pure, upright, godly lives. This is talking about believers in a church community who make the gospel of the Lord Jesus attractive by the way that they live. It means that God's people are going to stand out as different, very much different in this world. Because our behavior is not going to be shaped by the culture around about us. Our behavior is going to be shaped by what God says. And so our attitudes to a whole lot of things are going to be very different. And so our actions are. Our attitudes to money, for example. How we get money, how we spend money, how we save money, what we think of the place of money in our lives, that's going to be very different because it's going to be shaped by God's word. The way we do relationships with, with other people, friendships and, and companionship is, is going to look different. Our view of, of marriage and of, of sex and of gender is going to stand out as quite different in our community, in our culture, because it's going to be shaped by God's word. Abstain, he says, from, from sinful desires. That's one side of it. But the other side of it is down there in verse 12. And it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's talking about, about good deeds that come alongside moral purity. This is kind of the, the loving service that we give to others in the name of Christ. It's this idea that as a church and as, as followers of Jesus, we will be looking for opportunities to love and serve the world and the people around about us. And Peter's got this grand idea that as we do that, as we live morally good lives, as we do serve and love others, people will see our good deeds and will glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, in many ways, Peter is echoing what we read there in Matthew chapter 5, isn't he? He's echoing what Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I want to suggest that in both places, these two things, moral purity and doing good, loving service to others, they are to go hand in hand. If we focus on one without the other, our witness to the world is going to be lopsided. If we focus just on moral purity without being a blessing to others, without serving others, we're going to come off as snobbish and elitist and the kind of people who look down their noses at others. But if we just focus on the good works 
and yet our lives look like everybody else is going around us, then we'll sit alongside the Rotary Club and the Lions Club, as good as they are, and we'll just kind of go along with every march for justice that, that comes along without having a distinctively different life made different by Christ. Now, our discipleship, our following Jesus, is to look real and active and different. And it's to be done in the eyes of a watching world. We have this uh, saying in our, in our culture, don't we? Um, you hear it all the time. Don't judge me. You heard that one? Yes, of course you have. You've said it. We've all said it. Don't judge me. Well, I want to suggest, actually, as a church, we are saying to the world, judge us. Judge us. Judge our behavior and judge the works that we do. We welcome scrutiny because God is working through us for his cause and for his kingdom. We want people to see the difference that the gospel makes in our lives. As I said before, we want to have non-Christian friends. Now, I don't want to diss having Christian friends. We need them too. This is not a choice. You can have one or the other, okay? You can have multiple friends. It's this new thing. It's called Facebook. You have multiple friends all at the same time. But we want to have in our friendship group those who do not know Jesus yet so that they might see our good deeds or the good deeds that God is doing through us. They might see the difference the gospel makes. That the message of the Lord Jesus would be attractive because people see it working in other people's lives. All right, let's finally move on then because this is not quite where it finishes. Our attitude to the world, our behavior in front of the world, finally, our witness to the world. And for this, I actually want to jump over to the next chapter, chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible there, it would be probably be quite, quite handy to have that. And I want to read from verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone ask you for the reason for the hope that is, at, that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See the progression here? Peter's got this idea that living good lives, moral purity, serving others, in front of a watching world, will raise the question, what is different? And that God's people will be prepared to give an answer. Not an answer of, well, I guess I'm just better than everybody else. But an answer of, it's the difference that the Lord Jesus Christ makes in my life. Now, before I want to focus on that, we do need to be honest about what comes between chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, because this is a little bit scary. 
Um, it is not as if Peter is saying here, hey, live good lives. Everyone will love you for it. You will be extremely popular. And then in that context, you will get to just talk about your faith in a relaxed way and everybody will be really open to it. Not at all. The intervening verses are all about suffering for the sake of Christ. If you actually have a look at chapter 2, uh, verse 21, it kind of summarizes this whole section. It says, To this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And so he, he talks to people who are slaves at the time, uh, and he says, Your masters, they will mistreat you for being a believer, for being a Christian. And they will mistreat you for doing the right thing. He talks about talks to wives uh, who have non-Christian husbands, and he, he gives them advice about how they to operate in that circumstance because that is going to be very tricky for them. And then he talks to all of the believers living under a non-Christian government. And he says, this is going to be tough for you. Make sure that you are doing the right thing. And in fact, I, I, I wonder more and more if 1 Peter is a book that we actually should be considering as a church in Australia today. Because more and more, the situation that we see, we face, is here in the book of 1 Peter. Now, interestingly, when, when Jesus gave the same instructions in Matthew chapter 5 about letting your light shine, that also came in the context of suffering, didn't it? Blessed are you, happy are you, fulfilled are you when you mourn, when you weep, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. All right, let's be prepared because living these lives in a world that does not honor Christ is going to bring much opposition. It will not be popular. But our lives will stand out even more different when our hope in the midst of that is in Christ. We're to be ready, says Peter, because God is going to be at work in that. He will be preparing hearts. He'll be preparing lives to see the difference in us and to receive the great good news of the message of Jesus. Not all of us are, are preachers. Uh, not all of us stand on a corner, a uh, street corner, with doing evangelism. Uh, not all of us will run introducing God courses or, or the like. Not all of us will, will facilitate discussion groups or, or run growth groups. But all of us are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. All of us are to be equipped to tell what is ours in Christ and what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And as we do that, we don't, we don't trust in our own words. We, we don't think that 
people will be converted because we will speak eloquently or we'll explain it perfectly. We trust that in that, the Holy Spirit will be at work. God knows who are his own. He's prepared them from before the creation of the world. He will be at work. He will be bringing people to himself. So those friends that we've got, those people in our street, those people in our workplace, those family members, pray for them. Pray for God to be at work by his spirit within them. Pray for opportunities to to love them and to serve them and to get alongside them. Invite them to stuff. Invite them to maybe, maybe church. Maybe that works. Maybe it's not the right thing. Maybe it's your growth group that you're a part of or, or a group of Christian people hanging out and doing something together. Invite them and be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. Be prepared to tell them about what makes the difference in our lives. What gives us eternal hope and peace. Let's pray for that now, shall we? Uh, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that uh, you have made us your own uh, through the gospel. Uh, Thank you that you have saved us from sin and from death and from an eternity without you. Thank you that you have poured your spirit into our lives and given us hope and joy and peace. And Lord God, all of us here this morning, we, we have people in our lives that we would long for this to be true for them as well. Uh, those family members, those friends, those work colleagues, those people we play sport with. Lord God, we pray for your work in their lives. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to build a a deeper friendship with them, a connection, that we might not just share words, but share our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would make our lives a good witness and a sound witness, that they would point to you. Lord, give us opportunities to speak, opportunities to serve, opportunities to give a reason for the hope that we have. Give us boldness to take them. And Lord God, would you be at work in their lives, drawing them to yourself through your Son. We ask this for his name and for his sake. Amen.